Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hello, this is Ron Burgundy, and you are listening to my voice, which commands trust and respect. Guess what? My podcast is back, and that's a win for everyone. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you probably already know the deal. Each week, I bring you hard-hitting journalism and also light entertainment. I contain multitudes. Find the Ron Burgundy Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush. almost said welcome to the podcast like Josh does. <laughs> uh, in here in the studio with everyone's favorite new cinephile, Casey Pegram. Well, you're an old cinephile. Yeah. You're new to them. That's true. That's what I meant. <laughs> uh, and we are here for part two of the Stanley Kubrick, uh, I say three part, I know it's going to be longer <laughs> than that, uh, the Stanley Kubrick, what are we calling this, a... Uh, it's a special deep special dive. Deep dives. I don't know. Mini series. Mini series. I like that. Uh, and we, uh, or I rather, had the great pleasure of watching Casey's pick for the second film in this series, uh, Barry Lyndon, last night for the very first time. Yeah. Last night slash this morning. Uh oh. Do you have to break it up? <laughs> or or it just went past midnight? No. Here's the deal: is uh, while I'm, it takes a lot longer to watch these because I will pause to make my notes because mm, okay. I don't want to miss shit. Yeah. 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 So it was like 11.45, and I still had an hour and 15 minutes to go. Had you even gotten to, like, part two yet? I had still got, a, I was, Okay, I was you in just part started two. part two. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is so slow, and this is so boring, because we'll get into that, because yeah. that's a common criticism. Yeah. I was way into it. I was just like, I got to finish this. Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah, sure. To be my best self. Sure, sure. So uh, this is kind of fun, Casey, because we get to kind of just dive in. I know. Uh Let's talk Barry Lyndon. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Not to throw it on you first, but I, you know, I watched this. I've seen this probably between ten and fifteen times. <laughs> Dude, that's great. I started watching it in high school, <laughs> yeah. and it seems like I I get around to it about once a year. Yeah. Um, this may be one of those for me. I loved it. Yeah, I've I've seen it theatrically. I think two or three times. I've got to do that. Yeah. That I mean, that is like the ideal way to see it. Yeah. Um. The uh, the landmark here in Atlanta played it on film actually. Oh wow! Um, two three years ago. Uh, Where is that movie crush uh, alumnus uh, Scott was there? I saw him. Oh yeah, him in the lobby. Um, the, by Midtown Art is what I mean. Oh landmark. okay. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, it was like a beat up thirty five print, so it wasn't like it actually the the Blu ray looks much better. Yeah. But uh, it was still very charming and wonderful to be able to see it on film. Oh, anyway. so Scotty was there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of yeah. course he was. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, all you nerds hanging out. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean I've seen it uh, a couple times overseas, and 
you know, I just I just watched this most recent time, uh, night before last, uh, the Criterion Blu-ray, which is like a newer restoration, right? 4K scan mm-hmm. looks impeccable. Yeah. Um, and just the movie just gets better every time I see it. So yeah, yeah. Well, everyone, this is I streamed it, and you, uh, it is available to stream if you are an Amazon Prime member. So that's the good news. Uh, if you're if you're signed up for Prime, you can watch Barry Lyndon if you have three hours yeah. and good taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it looked pretty good on Prime? Yeah, man, it yeah. looked great. Yeah. You know, I've got a pretty good TV. Good, good. Um, although now that you've talked about the OLEDs, I'm <laughs> totally like... Got the bug? Jelly about yeah. that. Uh, I fucking loved it, man. Like, all the criticisms, and I guess if you haven't seen it yet, um, you should know that it was... Uh, a bit of a flop. Yeah. Kind yeah. of his only not, flop. Not well received and critically or financially. I mean... It, it won some, uh, like, technical Academy Awards, sure. like costume design and that kind of thing. But Cinematography, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, David Alcott. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. John, and, John Alcott, I think. John Alcott. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think David something was the, the set designer. Yes. He won as well. Yeah, yeah. I just watched... Um, I went through all the extras, and yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a whole segment on, of course, the cinematography, but also the set designer. That's just gorgeous. Who had a, a full-on nervous breakdown during that yeah. film. Yeah, what was up with that? Just too much? It was because he was he worked on a lot of the James Bond films, mm-hmm. and he also worked on Dr. Strangelove. He designed the the bunker, that famous bunker set. Oh, cool. So incredible. And the war room? Co- yeah, the war room, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and Kubrick had asked him to do 2001 as well, uh-huh. and he turned it down because he just knew Kubrick was going to drive him insane yeah. with logic, with asking him, right. why this? Yeah, yeah. Why does it have to be this way? What is the logical justification? And yeah. he just wants to be like, because it looks cool, Stanley, you know? Yeah, and that so, doesn't fly with Stanley Kubrick. So he knew, like, to get between Stanley Kubrick and NASA and try to, you know, he, he just was not up to that challenge. Right. Mentally. You know, he said that working with Kubrick was like one of the best experiences in terms of the work that he did. He thought the war room was the best set he ever made. Yeah. And I think he's right. But, you know, he just, he just could not go there. And then when Barry Lyndon came around, Kubrick went to him again and said, I can only pay you half of your normal rate, but will you do this? And then he did it. And he's like, you you made this very easy, Stanley. No, I'm not going to do it. Right. And like six weeks went by and then Kubrick came back to him and said, all right, I'll pay you your normal rate. Please come do this movie. Wow. And but the 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 thing that was tricky from a set design perspective is they didn't build sets. Right. It's all on real locations yeah, and yeah. these old houses and so yeah, castles and Yeah. And during the production apparently it just got to a point where um he was he he said he literally was questioning every decision <clears throat> to the point yeah. where he had no bearings anymore and he basically had to like take some time off, go to therapy wow. and like build himself back up and remember all his Jeez. accomplishments and everything and kind of get to the point where he could make a judgment call and feel at all confident about it because Kubrick wow. had just kind of broken him down, but he did win the Academy Award. So yeah, yeah. he can sit around and stare at that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Uh, and also believable. And I know that he spent um, like a, a full year in Ireland before. I mean, it was a year of prep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and by the oh, way, it's, yeah. I know you know everything I'm going to say. Sure, sure. <laughs> but uh, for those of you out there who don't know, the, the backstory is uh, Mr. Kubrick was going to do a film and his entire career wanted to do this Napoleon film. Mm-hmm. But uh, a movie came out called Waterloo, which yeah. did not perform well yep. right around that time. So he scrapped it. But he had done all this research on the time period and did not want that to go to waste. So he picked up the the book 
the Thackeray book. Um, he was going to do, he looked at Vanity Fair first. Yeah, that's what I heard. And he liked a lot about Vanity Fair, but he felt like it's too much to condense. There's right. too much event. The scope is too big. So he didn't really see how it would work as a movie. And that's uh-huh. what brought him around to The Luck of Barry Lyndon, which is the title of the book. Yeah, so um, he had all this knowledge about the time period. Um, very famously composed this movie uh, based on uh, paintings. Yes. Yeah, who were they? So it was Gainsborough, uh-huh. uh, Hogarth, and Stubbs were some of the painters. And um, he wanted to go primarily with paintings from the same era that he's depicting. Yeah. So like 18th century, but he cheated a little bit and went back a little further and uh-huh. went a little more ahead as well um, to kind of, you know, it's it's about a 300-year span that he's drawing from for the paintings. Well, it's amazing when you're, when you're seeing some of these shots, it's so clearly um, the frame and the composition is so clearly mimicking a, a painting. Yes. Uh, but also, like, there were so many shots like that where the, there was virtually no movement from anyone, mm-hmm. uh, maybe their hands. Uh, and of course, that one great, great shot when, uh, when the when the kid comes and wakes Lord him Bullingdon, up. Yes, at the end, and what everyone an incredible is just shot. like, yeah. <laughs> just sitting dead still. And that one is just the, like, a like a direct parlor. direct reference to a oh, painting. Yeah, yeah uh, and, it, the, and the posture of him in the chair and everything. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah, I'd seen that painting. Yeah, um, which is awesome. But so so many times in this movie too. Later on, in that well, I want to say third act. It's the third act, but it's part two. Yeah, um, they are. They have these compositions where they look like a painting and they are surrounded by those same paintings. Yes. Like sometimes yes. very large on the wall. Yeah. And it's that really huge one when he's um, reading the book to his kid. Yep. And I was watching one of the features and they talked about how that painting is is of sort of people in high society. Mm-hmm. And the idea is almost that you're seeing this, you know, Irish kind of scoundrel mm-hmm. who has elevated himself to this place in high society and it, it's like they've almost kind of, you know, they, they don't belong there quite, you know? Yeah. And so the the painting is like a kind of a commentary on that. Uh-huh. And then at the same time, it's there at the end of the film, one of the last shots, where you see Lady Lyndon, like, paying, paying all her bills. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of shaking her head as she has to write the uh-huh. 500, you know, <laughs> check to, what is it, 500, uh, 500 guineas. 500 guineas. Yeah. To 500 guineas. Basically a lifetime payoff. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. To just leave. And, uh, and the same painting is in the background. Yeah. And in that instance, it, it doubles almost as sort of like in the painting, it's people that are very prosperous mm-hmm. and yet in within the room itself, yeah. it's about a family kind of in decline now financially. Yeah. yeah and um, I, I know sometimes people listen to these without having seen the film yet, uh, which is a great compliment, I think, just to to us. <laughs> you really should watch it. But uh, you should watch it, A, but uh, just the quickest of recaps so you know what we're talking about is Barry Lyndon is a film about – I want to say con man. Yeah, kind of. But what I think that the actual child in the movie puts it best, he's a common opportunist. <laughs> uh, and that's the best way to describe him. He's an Irishman, uh, sort of a rogue who – who, um, and it's one of my favorite things in movies when uh, the the story is sort of happens to the character. Yeah. And every event, lead, you know, as the movie goes, he's sort of forced to do the next thing that leads to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think Roger Ebert even said, you know, this is a character who life happens to him. Yes, yeah. Uh, and so he eventually works his way into the high society uh, after being a, a British soldier and then a Prussian soldier. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and like a spy and a spy yeah. and assuming uh, the identity, stealing an identity, being uh, kind of, of a, like a, of an officer, uh, a, a gambler, a sort of um, yep. You know, not even a gambler. He's like the the gambler's assistant that helps him cheat. Basically, yeah, yeah, the chevalier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's what the movie's about, and it's basically just sort of this three hour journey of this character. And um, I guess let's talk about let's talk a little bit about Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, um, he was cast as the as Barry Lyndon, uh, Redmond Barry, who becomes Barry Lyndon once he marries Lady Lyndon mm-hmm. for her money. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also, you know, super hot. Yeah. But <laughs> had more to do with her money. Yeah. And she, I mean, she in particular, like, if you look at this Gainsborough portraits, like, that, that's very much the kind of classical beauty look that she has yeah. is what that painter kind of went towards. Yeah. And Kubrick apparently told her, like, to not go outside for, like, four months preceding the film. <laughs> she's pretty pale. So, yeah. like, everyone in the movie, well, some are straight up powder. Yeah, 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 yeah. But everyone is just the pallor yes. and the paleness yes. is very evident. Yeah. Um. So but Ryan, Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. Ryan O'Neill uh, got a <sighs> big star at the time. Very divisive know? casting call. Yeah. Still remains so because a lot of people say this is a masterpiece but for his acting. Mm. And I disagree. Yeah, I disagree as well. Yeah. So what's your take? I mean, you know, Kubrick, Kubrick definitely did just in terms of like strategic box office logic. Sure. He wanted a name. He wanted a leading man. Uh, Ryan O'Neill had done that movie Love Story. Oh, sure. Uh, One of the biggest movies ever. Yeah. And he'd also, I think at this point, he had worked with uh, Peter Bogdanovich on Paper Moon, I want to say, with Dan O'Neill. He was in What's Up, Doc, which is a huge movie. Yeah. He was a big, big, handsome movie star. He was a big name. It was kind of like, you know, in the 90s when Kubrick cast Tom Cruise, for instance. It's that kind of idea of like, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm making a very, like, demanding film, but I'm going to put, like, a big name at the center of it. Yeah. And that will kind of hedge... Some of the box office, right? You know, um, and he was coming off a bunch of successes as well. Kubrick was, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was. He had made Clockwork Orange just before this, and uh-huh. two thousand one before that. Yep, and Strange Love before that. So yeah, that's three in a row. Um, they were kind of all in a row, though, when you think about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, like uh, Barry Lyndon kind of like shook him a little bit. Yeah. And that's why in part why he then makes the shining afterwards because right. he wants more like a genre mm-hmm. sure thing, audience pleasing kind of thing. Yeah. You know, whether or not it ultimately did please an audience to watch <laughs> the shining, but um I love that was it the shining was his big give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's like the one movie. for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean in in one of the extras they're talking about the the performance style in Kubrick films we talked kind of touched on this in the last podcast <clears throat> that Kubrick does tend to direct actors in a in a kind of stylized way mm-hmm. it's not always particularly naturalistic yeah and in Barry Lyndon you have Ryan O'Neill doing a more kind of restrained mm-hmm. flat kind of performance yeah but everybody around him for the most part is a little bit like amped up a little bit you yeah. know there's there's some really like you know, Captain Quinn at the beginning of the movie is oh so funny. Like, <laughs> he's so just funny. such a tool. Like, and, yeah, and, and you know, so over the top. Yeah, yeah. And like, just, just his expressions yeah. and, you know, the faces he makes. And, <laughs> so um, you know, it's, it's, he's like being ridiculed. It feels like a black comedy in yeah, that first part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I, I think Ryan O'Neill having that kind of flat quality mm-hmm. just brings out, you know, the contrast of everybody else around him. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe also makes him a little bit more of a figure you can identify with because yeah. 
you're able to kind of project your own feelings and emotions and yeah. things onto him because he's not going so over the top uh, with what he's doing. Yeah, and and that's the character too. Like Barry Lind- or Ray- Redmond Barry was a man out of place. Yeah, a man who didn't want to be given away. Yeah. like or give up his hand. Yeah, so he was. While he was a con man in a way, it was always very subtle, and I feel like he was just trying to not be found out. Yeah. Uh, so it, I think it fit the role. Absolutely. You know? And it also kind of goes with what you were saying about things happen to him. Yeah. He's less of an actor. He's less, you know, actor in the sense of doing things, uh-huh. you know, of being active. Um, he's kind of a passive person. Yeah. And, uh, and, and sort of a cowardly person, too, in a way. Although when we first see him— you know, when he's young, when he's Redmond Barry, right? He's he's a young man, and he falls in love with his cousin, <laughs> and he is he is kind of motivated more by passion and emotion. Yeah, and it's because he really, you feel like he really believes in something. Uh-huh. And he's really like, um, uh, he he he's acting more on on genuine emotion, whereas well, and hormones. Yeah, let's of be course, honest. of course. Like yeah, he's young and, and youthful and horny. naivete yeah. and all that, but. Um, you know, as he gets older, as he sort of ascends the class ladder, uh-huh. the, the 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 rankings of society, he becomes more and more kind of removed and distant and cold mm-hmm. and about the only thing you can say about him that is redeeming near the end of the film is just the love that he has for his son, his biological son. Yeah. You know, that he does seem to genuinely care about that kid, and uh-huh. that's about the only thing. He treats his wife terribly. Yeah. Um, he treats his stepson terribly. Oh, God. He, you know, he's he's only interested in kind of uh, ascending rank and, <clears throat> and gaining this title so that he'll have some financial security. We can get into that more later. But, you know, he... He he gradually kind of loses who he was, mm-hmm. and he just becomes this kind of blank slate. But that's kind of how they are. Like, yeah, yeah. It was definitely a comment on the upper crust mm-hmm. uh, and just sort of the vapid coldness. Yeah. And, you know, like we said time and time again, and we will as we continue the series, Stanley Kubrick's films have never been described as warm right? Uh, character-wise. Um, and, that, and, that, and that does create a bit of an arm's length for an audience, but— it's all very purposeful. I don't think it's like an accident. Absolutely. Or yeah. like, oh, man, I just didn't get the emotion of this. Because when when Ryan O'Neill is tasked in really two big scenes to emote, mm-hmm. uh, when the captain dies yeah. to the sort of in the creek yeah. to the side of the battlefield. Right. And when his son dies, he brings it. And Those that are, shit is real. Oh, yeah. Those are very affecting scenes, yeah, I think, so, especially his son. Yeah. So that, to me, kind of just proves that he was... It was all very purposeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's not like Ryan O'Neill acted poorly. No, in this not at movie, all. I not think he all. was tasked to be removed and cold and distant and flat. The typical kind of Kubrickian Which protagonist. Which is hard, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it ha- it does have to be hard to just keep withholding, withholding, withholding for yeah. you know for a year, <laughs> six <laughs> months, however long they were shooting. A long time. I love a favorite scene of mine was when uh, when he was robbed on the trail. Yes. By uh, the gentleman robber, yeah. What's uh, Feeney? Yeah, Feeney. Yes, who is a real was a legendary right, right, highwayman. Right. Yeah, and he had the double guns out, yeah, which is so yeah, cool yeah, looking. Yeah. But uh, that scene was so funny, and there were a lot of sort of darkly comic moments. <laughs> yes, where, but again, things happened to him. Like had he had he dined with them, yeah, uh, which he had the offer to previously, he would not have been 
it would have thrown off the timeline. Yeah. And he would not have been robbed on the trail. His horse not have, would not have been taken. Yeah. He would have ended up in Dublin. Yeah. Instead, he had to join the British Army, and that yeah. kind of kicked everything in a completely different direction. Derailed whatever his trajectory was going to be. Yeah. Absolutely. And he just kind of went with it. Yeah. yeah or he did what he had to do, I guess. Yeah, who knows what would have happened to him if he had wound up in Dublin. He would have could have lived an entirely different life. Yeah, but that's, that's not a fun movie. No, yeah, but <laughs> that's the that's what's so charming about the film in a way, I think, is that you are just following somebody's life, and they're yeah. not even particularly – maybe the most interesting person from this time period to look after. But it's it's almost his own mediocrity that gives you the best vantage point to just look at the society itself because he himself is kind of an absence yeah. in a way. So you're you're encouraged to look at the periphery at what all is happening around him, that he's just being swept up in the current of history. Yep. A bit like Forrest Gump or something, you know, yeah. in a weird way. In a very weird way. Yeah. Well, it's th- there were so many times when I was watching this where I was like, oh, that – I'm surprised I didn't think of Forrest Gump because that's kind of a perfect analogy. But where I saw so many films that had clearly been just uh, <laughs> stealing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> From Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And not just Kubrick, but like Barry Lyndon Very specifically. Very specifically, yes. Yeah. Like, of course, Wes Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Who, well, who fully admits it. The way the way Wes Anderson uses zooms – yeah. oftentimes is, is well, very reminiscent of what yeah. Kubrick, the same way Kubrick used them. And the narration, I think, yeah. r- was very reminiscent of, of Tannenbaum's. Yes, yes. The sort of omniscient narrator who sometimes would, in this movie, would say things right before they happened. Yeah, he, he well, yeah, and sometimes uh, even even a little bit in advance of them happening. So there's that there's that line of voiceover about, you know, you're, you're watching a scene of uh, Barry playing outside with his kid. I think they're playing like croquet or something. Yeah. And uh, and the narration is just, you know, but fate would have it mm. that, you know, That's Barry right. would end his life poor, destitute, and childless, something like that. Yeah. You know, and it's, he, he, his family line would end with him, essentially. Oh, that's right. And and it almost that's goes really by without you c- completely processing mm-hmm. it at the time, but it's telling you, like, this kid's going to die. He's going to lose everything. Yeah. Um, and yet, when you're looking at on the screen, none of that has, you know, really begun to show itself. Yeah, yeah. And it happens a little bit afterwards. And Kubrick talked a lot about that that voiceover being so valuable in in the viewing of the film for uh-huh. the viewer because by by prefiguring a lot of this stuff, by kind of gently nudging you, this is going to happen, this mm-hmm. is going to happen – it it makes things feel a little bit more like fate. It makes things feel a little bit more set in stone. Right. And when they happen, they arrive with a feeling of like necessity or mm-hmm. like it had to go this way. Right. So it feels less like he's just being bounced around and like, mm-hmm. um, you know, things are just like arbitrarily happening one after the other. Everything kind of feels like it has a purpose and it's yeah. happening you know, and it, it is the voiceover that lends it that quality. If you were to watch the film without that voiceover, I wondered about that. It'd be very different. What that would be like? Yeah. Uh, and usually, I'm not. I mean, I, I do love well done voiceover, but this is the kind of voiceover I usually would be like, "No, nah, man, that that's not how you do it." Yeah. It's too on the nose. Yeah. It's too uh, telegraphed. Show don't tell kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but it just it fucking works somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's fascinating too because apparently. This really surprised me, even though we talked last time about Kubrick changing things up last minute. Yeah. But that voiceover came entirely in post. It was not part oh, of like a screenplay. It was not huh. structured that way. And that that amazes me because the film as the final product feels so 
carefully and deliberately constructed mm-hmm. that I'm really surprised that he didn't have this device in mind. Yeah, Maybe yeah. he thought about it, but it wasn't formalized in like a script screenplay sense. Um, or until, he may have known all along. Yeah, but until well into the editing. Yeah. And they tried different things. They tried different narrators and different uh-huh. – so it's just – I mean, even even when they were shooting and prepping and everything, like the screenplay – Liam Vitale talks about this where um, it would just say like Barry faces off in a duel against, you know, Captain Quinn. Yeah. That's the whole scene. Uh, and then oh, really? the next scene is like Barry gets robbed in the woods. Wow. That's the whole scene. So, you know, Liam Vitale describes getting handed the screenplay and just looking in like every scene was just like a descriptor of what it is. But so there was no dialogue yet even? There's no dialogue yet. When did he deliver that? So they actually started shooting and he still didn't really have much of a screenplay put together oh, other than just he had like the framework. Like he, he had the events in order uh-huh. and like the two-part structure I think he probably had. Um, but – all the specifics of the dialogue and everything was still like TBD. And so they shot for six weeks in Ireland. Then Kubrick basically said, all right, you know what? I'm kind of getting a better feel for what I want this movie to be. We're going to shut down production and just like come back in January and pick it up again. (laughs) And so he like went away for something like- How long was that? Six or nine weeks, something like that. Okay. And like actually kind of wrote it for real that time. Wow. And then they came back and- also somewhere in there, I don't know if it was, but at some point the the IRA actually threatened Kubrick I heard and his that. family. And he fucking left. He did. He was like, all right, that's a wrap on Ireland. You know, yeah. we're going to go back to England and a little bit in Germany and so on. Yeah. Um, so did he not go back to Ireland after that? I don't that? think he went back. He he did not want to mess with the IRA. Yeah, because that was it. mid-70s. Yes. Oh, that early. was height of the troubles. Yeah. yeah, not good. Yeah. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With Geico, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with Geico. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. Well, let's talk a little bit about the it, – it's a, it's not a war movie. There are scenes of battle and there are some army stuff, mm-hmm. the Seven Years' War. Yeah. But that's – I definitely would not classify it as a war film. No. And usually this I – mean, I mean, I guess you get some stuff with movies like Vanity Fair. But this time period, I feel like uh, you see a lot of war movies set during this time, but yeah. not a lot of – three-hour character studies right, right. about this time period. Yeah. Uh, but the war stuff was amazing. Oh, it's incredible. That's that's the part that he carried over from all the research and work that he did on Napoleon Yeah, when he was prepping Napoleon. Um, I know it's all very accurate. To, yeah. Like, 
Yeah, I think, they're, I think this, they're shooting but, on like maybe the real battlefields where stuff happened. Yeah, and, and just yeah. how it how war went down and yeah. like everything in this movie oh, is man, uh, crazy to look at. So how they used to fight wars, rule oriented. Yeah. Whether it's uh, the fist fight mm-hmm. or, or you know the bare knuckle brawl, yes. yeah, 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 or the war mm-hmm. or the dueling, like it's all or the or the the ga- the card games. Yeah, like yeah. everything had rules back then. Yeah, and Kubrick knew them all. Yeah, and. Uh, and, and there's still something very like barbaric about it all, but society puts this veneer of respectability on it yeah. by enclosing it within these quote unquote rules. But I yeah, think you don't hide in the woods; you yeah, march right at each exactly, other. Exactly, exactly. And maybe you get lucky and shoot people, you or maybe you get just, unlucky and catch a bullet. Yeah, you literally just march in a giant row. Yep. Towards the other army. <laughs> yeah. When you get into firing range, they just start shooting you. Yeah. And the whole first line just like goes down you know yep if you're lucky maybe the bullet hits the guy next to you or something but but that there's there's literally like no skill involved in not getting shot you're just marching in a line yeah i I know the dueling yeah and josh and i did a a show on dueling it was more like (laughs) will the gun work yeah rather than how good is your aim yeah yeah because like at the final duel oh man he's pointed right at his head and he shoots him below the knee yeah 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 10 feet (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes you know, so those and his gun misfired to begin oh, with. I love that like scene. Those, those things just sucked. Yeah, we'll yeah. put a pin in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, in terms of talking about rules, that's a very interesting look at. Yeah, rules and the idea of acting honorably and uh-huh. so on. Um, but those war scenes are amazing. Yeah, and what was so cool is you're they're marching toward the French uh, troops, mm-hmm. and the French are firing, and so you get that bit of a battle. But the main battle, like, I guess eventually you get close enough to where you're bayoneting. Yeah. Yeah. You can, can kind of hear screen. them. Yeah. Like, you you know, you you hear them firing. They fire maybe like three kind of rounds where they fire, reload, fire, reload. Yep. And, uh, you know, his his good friend gets hit. And so he carries him off yeah. to the creek. And you just kind of hear in the background like the, ah, like you can tell they've gotten to the bayonet uh-huh. phase. But, it was yeah. It's an interesting you, way to play it. Yeah. You never really see it. And, and you realize how quickly a battle like that kind of just plays itself out, you know? Yeah. It's it's not like the trench warfare of, like, World War One that Kubrick looked at in Paths of Glory. Right. Where it's, like, six months to gain, you know, an inch, basically, of territory and just meaningless chaos and death. Yeah, this felt like 45 minutes yeah, if yeah. it was played out in real time. And they even say in the narration, like, this battle never made it to the history right. books, but everybody <laughs> there found it memorable <laughs> enough. Right. Um yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. And the whole point of the battle was because there was like another battalion that was going to like be marching down that road and right. they didn't want the French soldiers there when they came along. So they're basically just kind of like clearing providing, a path. Yeah, clearing a path. Yeah. It's yeah. just kind of, I mean, there's there's a deep absurdity there that, yeah. that the narration touches on lightly without doing overdoing it. But it's just, just enough to let you know, like, this kind of stuff happened all the time. Right. And it really didn't amount to a hill of beans, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting character-wise, too, because um, Redmond Barry, uh, as much as we say, like, he doesn't have any particular talents and things just happen to mm-hmm. him. Yeah. He is uh, a great fencer. Mm-hmm. He's a good shot. Yep. He is a great fighter. Yeah. He Because he kicks that guy's ass who's a lot bigger. You don't expect him to win that fight, but no. he knows what he's doing. He never gets hit. Yeah. Uh, and then he, he's, he kind of becomes a bit of a war hero, like, for real, like— he not only in the in the first battle carries his, his good friend his first father figure yeah, yeah. you know which is there's a lot of daddy stuff in this sure, movie sure sure um, 
because right at the beginning he has lost his father in a duel. Yeah. And he's constantly seeking that father figure. That's right. Yeah. But he carries him off the field and cares for him. Um, he also gets to skip that battle. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then he saves uh, uh, what's his name? I think it's Potsdorf. Potsdorf. And it, well, I'm, I want to make sure it's not Potsdam because that's one of the locations. But I think it is Potsdorf. Yeah, I think it's Potsdorf. He he saves him for real. Like yeah. everyone else leaves. In that in that outpost, and he goes back in and lifts the fucking thing off of him. And that's after Potsdorf was the one who got him, yeah, you know, conscripted to, him into the Prussian army in the first place. He kind yeah. of busted him when, you know, his story didn't add up. Yeah, it's interesting character-wise, though, yeah. that he actually showed valor. He does have these moments of heroism where he does yeah. kind of rise to the occasion. and But it's not played in a big movie way. Yeah. It's just very... Kubrickian. <laughs> but then later, you know, when he's later on, when he's recounting his kind of glory days to his son. Yeah. You can tell he embellishes oh, sure. these stories and talks about beheading like 19 Frenchmen. And yeah, yeah. You know, he that again, like you're that's that's a sign that his character has kind of uh, a real shift in his character that he couldn't just relate the true story of this heroic thing that he did. Mm-hmm. He had to invent some ridiculous thing about yeah. all these beheadings and, you know, just it, it it's like he he loses like his authentic self and right. he's just a phony like even to his own son yeah he is a good father in a way i don't know good's a weird word yeah for the time period he's a very doting father yes yeah but that is mirrored by the uh, the mistreatment yeah. of lord uh, bullington yes and just what a fucking asshole he is to absolutely him. but uh he's that way but bec- i mean it's not justified but he's that way because Bullington is just so close to to Lady uh, Lyndon. I mean, Bullington has like, like he's he, the, he's he figures yeah. him out at ten years old. Exactly, he has his number the whole time. So the whole time, and he's not he's not quiet about it. No, so there is that they they just have a mutual disdain for each other. Yeah, I mean, he said he's the one that said at the very beginning, "I find him nothing more than a common opportunist." <laughs> I'm like, damn, that kid's yeah. ten. He's a sharp kid, <laughs> and he was right. You know, he was he was right about everything. Yeah, and. uh and it seems to drive a wedge even between him and his mother, sadly, mm-hmm. because, you know, later on, even though he's still kind of in that mama's boy, like when, when it first cuts to adult Bullingdon, yeah. he's like on the grass. It, like, it was Leon Vitale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's 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 sitting kind of almost in his mother's lap <laughs> still watching this uh, magician He's holding perform. her hand. It's, yeah, so, it's yeah, like yeah, so yeah. edibly creepy. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she, she has some commentary. You know, it, it's in the scene where he brings uh, – you know, the child right. into the concert and, you know, the mother says something to the effect of I'm trying to remember how, how she phrases it, but basically like, I, I, I would have loved you or I could have been closer to you had uh-huh. you not been such a pain in the ass with, you know, yeah. Barry. Um, yeah, which is, I mean, it's so shitty. I mean, he goes away. Yeah. On his own accord, but yeah. he stays gone for, you know, a large chunk. Yeah. Although you know he's going to come back, you, yeah. You, like he's you like get the Chekhov's sense gun. A, a he, like he has duel. to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, before before we get off the the subject of the battles, I did want to say like Kubrick originally, like a, like we were talking about, he was going to make this film of Napoleon, right? And the battle scenes in Barry Lyndon are like an indicator <laughs> of what Napoleon might have been oh, getting man. towards, but Napoleon to was going to be even way more, uh, almost unimaginably yeah. larger scale where he was literally going to rent soldiers from the Romanian army. Wow. Like tens of thousands. Some scenes were going to involve like 40,000 people. Holy shit. And he had this amazing idea where, you know, because you have to make uniforms for that many people, that just the budgetary requirements to to make those kind of uniforms period accurate and so on would have been just just incredible. So 
he came up with this idea. And I think they they did make these uniforms and test them out on camera where like the first row of soldiers that's closest to camera were going to be in these real, you know, accurate fabric, accurate period, kind of aged costumes. But as you progressively moved further back in the rows, eventually you would get to people that were wearing this kind of paper fiber uniform wow. that was very, very cheap material uh-huh. but would still photograph well from right. a distance, look accurate and not tear easily and so on, that could be made for like $1 to $4 per uniform. Mm-hmm. And so that was how he was going to achieve, again, shooting these like reenactments of battles on the on the actual battlefields where these battles occurred. Yeah, And, of course, he was going to probably – to the best of his ability from historians and so on, have the same battle formations and positions and mm-hmm. all that was going to be represented on screen very, very accurately. So It makes a difference, man. I mean, yeah. it's easy to say like, oh, come on, like you don't really need yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, there's an authenticity to his films and Somehow especially this one, it really does come through. Yeah. Like not, you can tell none of this is fake. Yeah. You know, I mean, not only because it's obviously the early 70s, but... Uh, it all just – it feels like you're uh, watching real life unfold. You're just like immersed in, in the, you know, every every conceivable aspect of mm-hmm. the history has been thought through and considered yeah. from the locations to the, you know, the costumes to – and, you know, he, he talks about how it's absurd for, you know, to be doing a period piece and to hire like a costume designer to do something like inspired by the period. Right. They just copied it all from paintings and photo, you know, not yeah. photographs, but paintings and etchings and drawings uh-huh. and so on. Uh, because why would you invent when you could yeah. just do the actual real thing? Yeah. You're never going to get it exactly right <laughs> if you just try to make something inspired by it. So just do the thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah. Um, well, on on the, the actual shooting, not only of that battle scene, because I did watch a little like 20-minute thing where they talked specifically about the – 600 feet of dolly track they mm-hmm, laid and they mm-hmm. had three cameras going. But um, you probably know more about this than me, but I know that Kubrick uh, worked with NASA to get lenses, specially crafted lenses yes. to not only allow these long, super long shots like on the battlefield, but uh, to allow the maximum amount of light for because we got to start talking about candle lit scenes. Candle lit scenes, yeah. <laughs> like, the NASA the NASA lenses would not have been used for any of the exteriors, I right. believe. Those those would have been Kubrick had a particular zoom that he he really loved using that he okay. uses throughout the movie where you start on these tight close-ups yeah. and then it's a slow pullback. And like for instance, the one the first duel by the by the water's edge. Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, it's such an amazing shot because you start on this close-up that doesn't feel like a close-up. It already feels like kind of a wider shot. Is this when they're getting the guns ready? Yes, when they're getting the, the guns ready, yeah. yeah. And that's already like kind of a, a whidish sort of medium range uh-huh. shot. And and then it kind of starts to pull back. Mm-hmm. And somebody made this observation that at every moment <clears throat> during that pullback, if you freeze frame it, you have like a great looking composition that mm-hmm. you could like – print out, put up on a wall somewhere. Right. So it's not just that he starts on good composition and ends on a good composition. It's like through every stage of <laughs> yeah. it, when like the tree enters the frame, yeah, and then yeah. like some more people standing around another frame. Uh-huh. And then by the time you get back, you've you've got the entire height of the tree on like the left side of the frame, like a beautiful cloud pattern in the sky yeah. and the river. And like, it, it, it's like compositions within compositions. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's that's that particular 
zoom lens that he used uh, on a lot of the daytime exteriors. It, it has a big. I mean, let's just talk real quick about that. The shot, the pullback yeah. shot. Yeah. Um, it's a Kubrick move for sure, mm-hmm. but he uses it so much in this movie. It becomes. Um, it's not overused, but it it becomes a thing of its in and of itself. Yes. Uh, the way he reveals, and I started, I started getting way into my brain about it. <laughs> like, is it even a metaphor of this character who you start a movie on this teenager in Ireland, yeah. which is you might say a tight shot, mm-hmm. and then you pull back throughout the entire film, right, to reveal this three-hour uh, wide shot, kind of the of this entire guy's life. structure of society. Yeah, it way, felt a little thematic, time. and that's probably a little, you know reading it into what Kubrick was probably doing. No, I think I think whether whether he thought about that consciously or not, I mean, it does it does make sense and it does kind of it mirrors very well like you said what yeah. the film is actually doing on like a thematic kind of narrative level that it's also it makes me think of like painting where sometimes if you look at reproductions of paintings and books mm-hmm. where you'll have the entire painting on like one panel, one one part of the one part of the page. Yeah. But then you also have like a detail that's like a blow up yeah, yeah. enhancement of just a particular subject in the painting. Yeah, yeah. And to me, it's like moving from a detail back right. to the entire canvas or something. Like when you go to a museum, or at least I do, mm-hmm. you, you stand back and look at the picture. And then you move in real close. Then you move in real yeah, close and yeah. look at the thing on the table. And it's like there's things you can discover at both ends of the scale. Yeah. So it's it's a way for him to kind of mimic painting in a way but also to do something very cinematic which is to do all of that within the same shot and it's moving it's like a moving tableau or something and he's also pushing the audience away literally yeah he's pulling you back he's like which you're is, starting up close to this yeah. character but then you're moving back and it's just like but also consider them in the context of their surroundings and right. this period of history and but tonally like if this film has been criticized for keeping the audience at arm's length yeah. and he's constantly it's a literal pushing way. the audience yeah, yeah, back, yeah. it's kind of it might even there might even be a slight tongue in cheek yeah. knowing Kubrick uh when it comes to stuff like that cuz it is almost always a pullback i don't know if he has any push ins he has ins. like I don't know if he has a zoom in yeah. he's got a couple of slow dollies, dollies zooming in, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's got a lot of static camera and then the only time he goes handheld is when there's violence. When there's a fight, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, you know, the first one is the the, the fist brawl yep. in the army. That's handheld. Which makes handheld super effective Yes, when it's not overdone. When he beats the crap out of Lord Bullington. Oh, God, that, that, that scene is brutal. That is an incredible scene. Just the, 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 the tonal shift yeah. and the way the energy of the movie changes yep. where it's like, He's making this break with polite society. Uh-huh. You know, he's he's In showing his true way. colors, kind of, and everyone is just aghast at, at what he's doing. And it's so brutally violent. It's, yeah, it's so brutally violent and messy. And yeah, again, it shows it shows like those kind of like barbaric tendencies that are just bubbling beneath the surface uh-huh. of like polite society. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the handheld is is a big part of that. And then it also happens again when uh, Lady, Lady Lynn attempts suicide. And, yeah, you know it. That's that's a remarkable scene because we get very little of her like internal life, uh-huh. how she feels about anything. She's you know nothing. Yeah, you know I mean, you f- can almost nothing. Into it, what's going on? All in you her can head. see is just when she's being yeah. mistreated, like when he blows the smoke in her face oh, in God. the carriage, or <laughs> when she's asshole. out walking with Lord Bullingdon and she sees him with yeah. one of the housemaids. And, uh-huh. Um, it, you know, it's all you see is her suffer basically mm-hmm. in silence, kind of. And you have very little indicator of of how she feels about any of it, other than she's unhappy. Yeah. 
And yeah, in that one scene where she she's just like go. knocking over the chair and uh-huh. screaming <laughs> and it's handheld again. And it, you just kind of feel like, wow, okay, these are real living, breathing yeah. people. It's just that society requires them to not show any of that. And that they, happens that like feel twice in three hours. So, yeah. it's so it makes it so it's effective. very powerful when it happens. And, uh, and it's funny too in the scene where he beats Bullington's ass <laughs> and has like 10 people pulling him off. Yeah. I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of Clockwork Orange right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, you know, I, I had never um, picked up on this, but um, if you look structurally at Clockwork Orange, uh-huh. it's a rise and fall. Oh, yeah. And the movie is basically divided up into into two halves. Uh-huh. You have the introduction of Alex and you have this progression all the way up until when he finally gets thrown in jail. Right. And then you have the whole second half of the movie with right. the Ludovico treatment and everything else uh-huh. where it's like his downfall in a way. Yeah. Um, and there's like a mirrored aspect where, you know, towards the end of the movie, he's like returning home to his parents again and uh-huh. finding out that they've rented out. So like it, it has this very clean – one part rise, one part fall. And Barry Lyndon is the same exact structure. Yeah. Weirdly. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think about that. And if you think about Kubrick's fixation on symmetry right. as like a visual metaphor, uh-huh. he also is that way like narratively, structurally. Right. That he likes these, you know, bifurcated two halves of a of a narrative that mirror each other in some way. Right. So yeah. Very, yeah. So Back to the lenses and the candlelit scenes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he very famously, um, as much as he could, especially in the exteriors, used mm-hmm. natural light. Yes. Um, it is a bit of a misnomer the more I dug that he, you know, you've heard people say he only used natural light for right. this film. No, definitely not. It's not, not. true. Yeah. Um, a lot of the interiors, he he apparently ne- almost never had a light inside a room. But he had outside the windows. Yeah, he was casting the daylight, light. constant. Uh, and they would cover the windows, uh, as you know, with, uh, it's called opal, but it's mm-hmm. like a... Sort of a see-through. Yeah. Um, like diffusion. Yeah, diffusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess if you don't know anything, I'm trying to think of listeners and what <laughs> how could I describe it. It's almost like uh, wax paper. Exactly, yeah. That you would put over the window so when the light comes in, it just gives a very even sort of glow. doesn't give you like that hard direct light that yeah. casts really harsh shadows and goes to one specific point where you're aiming the light. Right. It just diffuses it so that it's more of like an ambient it just brings up it's the like overall light, light level. It's like light coming into a window, yeah, through, exactly. like the sun does. Yeah, and he wanted it to, to do it this way, not because he wanted to be Stanley Kubrick and be a pain in everyone's ass. He did it because th- they didn't have lighting back then like this. He wanted it to look like it would have looked where most of your lights coming from life. daylight and yep. candles. That's and what you had back then. He he achieved it uh, through the use of those exterior lights, and then very very famously through uh, the use of thousands and thousands of Double and triple wicked candles. Yes, and uh, they they talk about in the extras how these candles would burn down very quickly. Right. I assume they had to be. Well, assume we can guarantee this that they were mimicking the candles of the period. Uh-huh. They were not modern candles that might last longer. Right. <laughs> uh, so these candles burned down very quickly and had to be changed out after pretty much like every take or two. Yeah, and the drips. The drips had to because be controlled. Know, scraped off or whatever. They had to be, yeah, they, they had to design kind of special candle holders that would look period accurate, but also assist with these drips not yeah. getting on any of these yeah, yeah. priceless historical locations where they're shooting. <laughs> oh, God, it's such it's a like, pain. You know, you, uh, anybody that's ever like been on like a location shoot or, you know, had somebody come to them to want to shoot in their house or mm-hmm. something like 
productions will promise we won't break anything, we yeah, won't yeah. touch anything, we'll put it back just the way it was. And people that are maybe naive are like, okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and then, don't, don't ever do it, people. And then, you know, boom, <laughs> you bring in like a 40-person film crew carrying like heavy lights and gear yeah. and bumping into walls and knocking shit over. And It's tough on a yeah, house. Yeah, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's but not— But with historical landmarks, oh, like, man. I'm sure they were insane about yes. uh, the people that they were working with yeah. that, can, that ran these places. Mm-hmm. It, it just, I can't imagine how tough that was. Well, they said that some of these houses, you know, a lot of them probably are open for like tours to the public. Uh-huh. And they, they did not close them down to the public while the shoot was going on. Oh, wow. So if you happen to go to one of these houses while they were shooting. They just corral uh, They would them. just kind of corral and like rope it off. Like, yeah. don't go in that room because they're doing a movie Stanley in there. Kubrick's yeah, in Stanley there. Kubrick's <laughs> shooting a little thing in there. Um, but I believe in some cases they actually had to like stop shooting and let people check out the room for a minute. Wow. And move on and then like, okay, we can pick up again. Yeah, yeah. So you just imagine like how often they're having to stop and start and yeah. reset and with the, between the candles and – But the effect though know, yeah. is like stunning. Oh, it's incredible. Those candlelit yeah. scenes, there's just this warmth that like you cannot get from lights. Yeah, there is there is no way to do it. Just the, the flickering of the light that you yeah. see on their faces and if they were – because I mean obviously a lot of movies have – shot with candles in the shot sure, and then lit with something else yeah, that's yeah. a more constant, bright kind of source. These are providing the light source. You can tell they're providing the light source because they are literally, you see when the candle flickers, when it changes direction or mm-hmm. something, the light goes away for, for a few frames. Yeah. And you see that flicker playing out on their faces. The same was true um, uh, in the exterior because they were shooting in Ireland for a year, which is like, you know, one of the rainiest, cloudiest yeah, places yeah. on the planet. Yeah, yeah. And there, there are long shots where he would, uh, you you could see the light change in the sky, which I know oh, it's beautiful. Terrence Malick has yes, done that, but exactly. Generally, you don't do that uh, yeah. because it messes. You know, you, you have your aperture set, yeah, messes with continuity. Yep. But he had a special, uh, I think, a lens made mm-hmm. that he could control the aperture as they were shooting. Yeah, I don't which know. Which is yeah. crazy. Like maybe this, they, yeah, maybe they rode the aperture a little bit. They did. They had uh, yeah. a, they had a, one scene in particular. They had a special lens made where they actually it didn't. It was like a still photography lens. Yes. That they had to retrofit to yeah. work on a camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to declick the aperture. Yeah, and I think there was two. One one when he was being robbed, and there was another one. I can't remember which scene, but they said basically that they started and they moved like six or seven stops. Yeah. To wow. the end of the scene, it was. Wide crazy, open and crazy. just which affects you know depth of field, depth of field, yeah. and like you know the slightest little jiggle with a with a with the camera like yeah. is amplified by a million. Yeah, so uh, just really technically unbelievable, unbelievable yeah. stuff. Yeah, there's there's one scene that I that I clocked last time I was watching it a couple nights ago, um, where it's just a shot of like a road. Uh, the 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 road is kind of on the left side of the frame. Yeah, the right side is just sort of trees and countryside. Is this when the, the wagon's coming or whatever? Or not the wagon, maybe, but the, the carriage? Maybe. Um, I feel like maybe it was something on horseback, but maybe it's a carriage. Um, but like the cloud actually appears to kind of move with him uh-huh. through the shot. Wow. Where it's like, that was just one of those happy accidents, I'm sure. Right. But maybe they did it like 20 or 30 times until <laughs> he was like, ooh, that was a good one. Like, I like the way the cloud moved through the shot right as he was coming through. Yeah. And it's just one of those things. Yeah, they, they talk about, especially like you said, in Ireland where uh, in in those early scenes with Captain Quinn dancing and, and all that kind of yeah. stuff, like from one minute to the next, it's like it's rainy, it's cloudy, it's sunny. Uh-huh. And if you're going to have any kind of consistency at all, you just have to sort of wait 
yeah. for the for the sun to go back behind a cloud or come out or whatever effect you're going for. Wow. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, and recovery to improve their performance and push through. Hall of Fame women's basketball coach Muffin McGraw has established the culture of winning through her historic 35-season career at Notre Dame. But this season, Coach and her team are trying everything to stay afloat against a losing record. Here's Coach McGraw. I've never been in this situation before of having lost five starters. And I was just thinking the other day, you know how when you're going through things and, and the stress of being number one and being the team to beat and being every game knowing you're supposed to win, that that really weighs heavy on your shoulders. And I, I think I said at one point, wouldn't it be great to be the underdog again? And my husband said, be careful what you wish for. And here we are. Listen to The Only Way Is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. Um, one of my favorite parts is uh, is the section with the Chevalier. Yes. Uh, when they first meet, you know, he has been uh, tasked to be a spy by uh, Potsdorf. Potsdorf. And his crony, whoever that other guy is. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the second who is yeah. really the first. And, yeah. of course, their yeah. meeting room and, you know— it's, it's like their little military office. This yes. is like a grand palace. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets tasked with being a spy. Uh, they say that this this guy is a is a gambler and sort of a a man about town, and uh, you need just need to get in there and see what's going on. Yeah. And the narration when he meets him, he he meets he sort of looks like John Cleese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's in full like white makeup, and he looks like this dandy fop. And the he's got, uh, he's got the eye patch. Yeah, he's got the eye patch going. It's got the really visible mole, like yeah. you see in so many people of that period. That's the thing they put on, yes, though, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. I yeah. thought so. Uh, but he said the narration goes, uh, right before he sells out his mission, which was instantly, yeah. the narration goes, there's many a man who will not understand the calls of the boast of feeling, which was now about to take place. Yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> and he, he basically telegraphs. just breaks down yeah, yeah, and yeah. just is like... I'm a spy. I'm here to spy on you. <laughs> exactly. And Podstore sent me. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just and, spills the beans immediately. Well, because he's daddy. And the yeah. guy gets up and just immediately True. hugs him. And then they have this, like, solidarity They together. both have this outburst of emotion. Yeah. You know. Um, For the time period. Yeah. Even though he's kind of having to, he, he you know, the, the, the Chevalier's reaction is a little more subdued. He's kind of patting him on the back. Doing yeah. Like a there, there kind of But that's now thing. his son in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then they travel the, you know, the country uh, and Europe, like, Gambling and going to salons and spas and, yeah. and cheating and ripping people off. Yeah. And uh, that is such a that, – that technique of like – I feel like it's used a lot in comedies. It's almost a cliche at this point uh-huh. where, you know, the voiceover will prefigure something somebody's about to say. Sometimes they'll even say what the thing is yeah. and then cut to the person saying yeah. the thing. <laughs> uh, that's a very like common yeah. effect. But somehow in Barry Lyndon, it's not like a laugh out loud moment. But it is just like a wry kind of like yeah. wink and a nod. Super dry. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So yeah. back to lenses. Yes. Because um, we're not done. I mentioned NASA. Yeah. Uh, what, what did he do? He worked with NASA on a special lens, right? So NASA had designed – and Zeiss working with NASA. Right. Zeiss, a very fam- famous uh, lens manufacturer out of Germany, mm-hmm. had made these special lenses that had an aperture of F0.7, mm-hmm. F0.7, which – if you know, just to briefly ex- explain aperture and like f stops, um, 
the aperture, also known as the f-stop, is like the ratio of the aperture to the focal length of the lens. Mm -hmm. So to make it kind of easy to understand, um, it, as the number is lower, mm -hmm. if it, say you're on an f1, that means the opening of your lens is equivalent to like the focal length of your lens. So you're letting in a lot of light. Yeah, the aperture will get wider and narrower, yeah. allowing in more and less light. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so... Uh, the the fastest available lenses when Kubrick was making this film, like fastest available in terms of like what was kind of commercially around, mm -hmm. might have been a one point four, mm -hmm. um, but more likely like a two or a two eight, especially if you're talking zooms. Mm -hmm. For primes, you probably had some like you know stills lenses that would open up to a one four, mm -hmm. and maybe some motion picture lenses too. Um, but Kubrick, because he wanted to shoot in candlelight, mm -hmm. he needed a faster lens than that, faster. In, in the sense of lenses, in the sense of, like, photography does not refer to, like, the frame rate you're shooting at. Right. When you say a fast lens, you mean a lens that gathers a lot of light. Yeah, it means when, you can shoot in, in this case. In low light conditions. Super low light. Yeah. So Kubrick had calculated that, okay, our speed of film, uh, the sensitivity of the film is what they call uh, an ASA of 100. Yeah. ASA is used interchangeably today with ISO if you've ever done – you know, video or stills photography, you're uh -huh. probably familiar with the ISO setting. The ISO is like how sensitive the film is to light. And as that number increases, it has numbers like 100, 200, 400, 800, and so on. Uh, every time that number doubles, you're getting another stop of sensitivity in the light Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the sensor. And so what Kubrick was planning on shooting on was just ISO 100 film. And they were going to rate it at 200 and then push it one stop in the development. Yeah, and what that means, everybody, I know we're getting into yeah, the fucking weeds here. Yeah, we're getting here. in the weeds here. But pushing is when uh, when you develop something um, not a, as it was intended to be developed. You develop it, like, for longer. Yeah, you know, and as so, if it were a different, yeah. not film stock. Well, maybe film stock sometimes. Yeah, kind of. You treat it, you basically just uh, let it develop for longer so that more of the image, the brightness of the image comes through. But at a cost of you're you're also exposing like more of the grain in the image. Yeah. So like I re I remember in film shoots early on they would uh, they would uh, change the film over and they would tape the can shut yep. and and somebody would say push that two stops exactly. and they would write that on the tape yep. so the lab would know yeah. to develop it specifically that way. Yeah. And sometimes you know a lot of people would do that for almost aesthetic reasons. Uh, especially as you get later on into the lifetime of film, like there were faster films around. You yeah. Could, you could get 400 or 800, but you might still shoot on 100 and push it a couple stops because you actually want that grain pattern to come through and to give you your, your image that kind of like texture to it. Um, but in the case of Kubrick in the 70s, I think he was shooting on the 100 speed film because usually the, low, the lower the ISO of the film, the more kind of colorful and vibrant and rich it's going to be. Um, the less grain there's going to be. So you get just this beautiful, pristine yeah. kind of image that was very important, for instance, for like the daytime exteriors to kind of mimic that of paintings. If you shot that on like 16 millimeter or if you shot it on, you know, a, a faster film, there would be more grain in those scenes mm -hmm. and it would kind of spoil the effect in a way. Yeah. So all of this is kind of setting up to say Kubrick had a real problem. Mm -hmm. He had like a, a, a math problem or a physics problem yeah. where it's like 
these candles only put out so much light. They literally put out one foot candle, which is a popular kind of way of measuring light. And that was with double and triple wicks. Yeah. And doing uh, everything they could. Hundreds of candles. Yeah. Sometimes right under someone's face. Yes. And so he had this problem, right? We've got 100, you know, ISO or ASA film. We're going to push that one stop to 200 Mm -hmm. because that's still going to give us an acceptable level of grain. Mm -hmm. Uh, By pushing it to 200, okay, we've gotten one aperture closer to this problem. Right. But at a 1.4, we're still not there. (laughs) We're still way under. Yeah. So how do you get faster? Well, he was reading an article, I believe, an American cinematographer that talked about these lenses that Zeiss had developed for NASA. And the lenses, again, had an aperture of f0.7. And this is so they could shoot in space. This is so they could shoot like the dark side of the moon, yeah. basically, yeah. And so uh, that is that is a full two stops faster, which means it gathers four times more light yeah, than man. the 1.4. So, but it was not that simple. It was not as simple as like getting the lens from NASA and slapping it on the camera. Yeah, yeah. Because they were never made to fit yeah, certain cameras. Exactly. Yeah. And the the this the design of this lens was was had had nothing to do with motion picture cameras. Yeah. So Kubrick had to have someone modify one mm-hmm. of his personally owned cameras right. to fit the lens <laughs> so that it was literally just a few millimeters away from the film gate. Uh-huh. So a very, very narrow tolerance <laughs> for any kind of error. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in precision. If it was off by just a millimeter one way or the other, the image would probably be out of focus. Mm-hmm. It might be a vignette or it might be a little too cropped in or something. Yeah. So we had to get it just right. Had to design uh, an entirely different like viewfinder system yeah. for the for the camera so that when they were actually rolling, they could still see what they were doing. Uh-huh. And you know, the combination of pushing the film a stop, doing everything they could with the candles. Amazing. Using this, you know, incredibly kind of technically advanced lens from NASA. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we, we mentioned earlier, as you open the aperture up more and more, you're letting in more light, your depth of field gets more and more narrow. Right. So in in these, you know, it was a 50 millimeter lens, which is for, for 35 millimeter cameras, that's kind of like a portrait lens. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're accustomed to like shooting full frame, it's more like a 70, 75, mm-hmm. something like that. So it's it's not a wide lens. Um, it, it's more of like a medium close up kind of lens. And as your as your focal length goes up, that also reduces your depth of field because you're in more of a close up situation. Yeah. And so if you had the subject about eight feet away from the camera then your depth of field was equivalent to like 1.7 inches, mm-hmm. which means if anybody leans forward the slightest bit, yeah, you're leans back, you're, you're immediately out of focus. <laughs> well, that's one reason why everyone was so still in a lot of these shots. Yes. Not only did he want to mimic the painting, but the the, the actress who played uh, uh, Lady uh, Linden yeah. said, you know, we had to remain still yeah. because we would be out of focus yeah. if we moved a fucking inch. Yeah, yeah. And so Kubrick had to come up with this a system where his focus puller, like it's it's just unreasonable to expect a focus puller to be able gig? to eyeball <laughs> the difference of a couple inches from yeah. eight feet away or however far away he is. So Cooper actually came up with this idea to have a second camera, a closed circuit TV camera mm-hmm. that would be kind of uh, perpendicular to the side of the actor. Yeah. And then they placed a grid over the monitor that was showing the image from this closed circuit TV camera. And there it was like lines, vertical lines going down the picture mm-hmm. from the profile of the actor. So that when the actor did lean forward, there were measurements noted on this 
you know, overlay mm -hmm. that would say the distances. And so he could look at that line. Wow. In, the actor intersecting with that line and move the lens, you know, move the focus ring accordingly. Mm -hmm. And they did the whole movie like that. You know, whenever Jeez, whenever dude. they're on these um, dimly lit candlelight yeah. interiors, he Which would is just a have lot. to, yeah. And I mean, so it's, like, it's incredible. Like, if you watch that movie, like, certainly the 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 the, the images of the candlelit interiors—they're soft. Uh -huh. They have a beautiful softness to them, but they're never out of focus. No, and like people that don't—if um, you're not super technically savvy about some of this stuff, like in the last like eight minutes, just <laughs> went over your head. Right. When you watch this film in, in an era. And a year, especially, of some of the best-looking movies you've ever seen, Barry Lyndon stands out apart from those even. Even that, And, like, yeah. while you're watching this movie, if you're like, man, this thing really looks great, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, such great uh, preparation and care and thought and inventiveness went into making what you see on the screen. Uh, and that's why scenes like one of my favorite shots is, is when the – the the soldiers when that house is on fire oh yes and the soldiers have torched it yeah and they are leaving with like some of the supplies that they have raided yeah yeah just kind of marching slowly away yeah and it's, and that bit of narration too is he kind of sells out the 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 era and and the military because the narration kind of straight up says something like you know during this time period we are you know we think of them as of noble and all this stuff yeah but like kind of what you're seeing on screen. I wish I I wish I'd written down the exact quote. It's something to the effect of I know the shot you're talking about and the the bit of narration I'm thinking is it comes a little bit later where you actually see them uh some Prussian soldiers marching by with what looks like just like random kids and like Yeah, they've got like young people and... like people people that are not, you know, farmers, people that are not like trained soldiers. Yeah. It just says, you know, we we think of the military, we think of like the king and so on as yeah. being these like dignified, high ranking people that 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 there's sort of like an honor in 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 going to war and bravery and yeah. so on. But actually, in order to keep the ranks full, you know, because basically the king needed like cannon fodder, mm -hmm. um, they they would just have to take anybody into the army. Yeah, it was sort of an indictment of yeah. war and the military yeah. and nobility. And it just kind of goes by like, like all in one quick little yeah, line. Yeah, it says so much because it's just, not even the grand statement of the movie yeah uh it's just you know just part of that yeah. world you know that that they're they basically just need warm bodies to catch bullets you know it's it's uh it's brutal uh, i'm looking over my page here trying to think of a couple of uh, my favorite parts um linden's uh the 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 former linden mm -hmm. who who dies uh his death scene yes is one of the great yeah i love great it scenes in movies yeah it's so over the top and like just that guy's just chewing through scenery. He tries to open up his pills and they spill out onto the table. <laughs> yeah. And then he's he's wheezing and he's 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 on death's doorstep, you know. And Barry um, had just or Redmond had just yeah, left the room yeah, yeah, basically yeah. saying, He who laughs laughs. Exactly, when it exactly, wins. exactly. And uh and it's so interesting the effect that he again the voiceover creates there where you're still seeing this person alive moving on screen, even though he's like struggling to catch his breath. Yeah. But the narration says, you know. Lord Linden yeah, yeah. passed away not long after. Yeah. So, you, so you're seeing this person <laughs> as they're still alive, but you're hearing that they've died or yeah. that they're going to die very well, soon. Well, and you, even before, as a first time viewer of this movie, when they're sort of facing off right there, the guy, Linden, was getting so worked up. Mm -hmm. I'm like, he's 
gonna die. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's gonna to keel have, over right he's now. About to have a yeah. Heart attack. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that's just what happens. Yeah, it's so funny. And, uh, and again, but played a little bit for black comedy. I think. Oh yeah, it's so over the top. Yeah, and just the 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 sense that like you know if if you have any notion that your wife loves you or something. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he's he's dying. He's not long for this world. Sure. And he's already seeing his replacement. Like, oh man, yeah. Just and slide he's on so in, mad and, about you know. It. Yeah, yeah, and he can't do anything about it. And it's like, just yeah, the 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 notion that his whole life yeah. has just been. For nothing, for a sham, you know? Yeah, and that's a bit of a, a, like, the notion of the May-December thing. Like, the old man with the young, you know, the the 60-year-old man with a 25-year-old girlfriend. That's all fun and games, but he knows. Yeah. In in real life, those those men know that that woman would rather be with someone closer to her age. Yeah. Like, deep down, they maybe have the money, Mm -hmm. and they may have the the notoriety or the wealth or the fame. Yeah, yeah. But, like... At the end of the day, this character and in real life, these guys, they see the Ryan O'Neills come into the room yep. and the way their wife looks at them. Exactly. And all the money in the world won't change the nope. fact that you're about to fucking die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. Really um, interesting stuff. And it's interesting, too, because at the beginning of the movie, what is Redmond Barry doing? He's he's kind of resisting mm-hmm. this almost sort of arranged marriage that's going to happen between his cousin and Captain Quinn. Yeah. Where... You know, the family says it outright. They're like, this Captain Quinn is worth 1,500 guineas a month, you know? It's like— That's why they fake the duel. There's no talk of romance. There's no talk of of he's a good guy or anything like that. Yeah. It's just like he means a lot to this family financially, Uh the bottom line. Yeah, they straight up say it. So it's very much like, you know, an arranged marriage or or something. Yeah. And uh, and, and young Barry, kind of like idealistic Barry, wants to resist this and and believes in true love and passion and so on. Yeah. And then he gets a little bit older and soon he does the same exact thing where— Sure, she is a beautiful woman, but he he clearly doesn't love her, right. and and he just it is entirely about him. Yeah, it's a means uh, rising through the ranks and yeah. kind of legitimizing himself as part of this higher rung of society. Well, so, and then his mom at one point kicks it up a notch because yes. she's like, "You're with Lady Lyndon, and this is great." And I think in his mind at that moment, he's like, "Yeah, he I've, thought he was set. I'm yeah. done." Yeah, exactly. She's he thought like, he'd, he thought he'd done it. Yeah, and the mom basically says, "You don't have a penny to your own name, exactly, and you are a a bad accident away from being broke." Yeah, and so that's when he starts trying to ingratiate himself to the larger uh, upper yeah. crust uh, and and achieve title or whatever. And that sets about his downfall her, financially. Set, yep, he yeah, is, he's the cause of his own demise. Yeah, he is the agent of his own son's death. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, I know this film, uh, I'm not defending it but by being a, a cold sort of detached thing, but I will say this is the only movie I've ever watched where a child dies and I didn't, like, even get a lump in my throat. Really? No, nah, man. During that, I was just like, all right, this is happening. Interesting. And I, and I got into the acting and Ryan O'Neill breaking yeah, down. Yeah, But I wasn't myself, like, upset. Wow. Interesting. I'm... I don't know. It's it, sometimes when I watch it, I do have more of an emotional response, and sometimes it is more of that kind of slightly distance feeling. But I do find that to you know at least on certain viewings, depending on how I'm feeling or whatever, mm-hmm. I have kind of gotten more choked up during that part, just because. And I might on a different day too. Yeah, something about the the scene that really got to me was when he's in bed and his head is all bandaged mm-hmm. and he can't feel anything other than, like, just his face, I guess. And he's paralyzed, I think. He's paralyzed, yeah. yeah. 
and he talks about his body being very cold. And yeah. he just asks his parents straight up in that way that children do. Am I going to die? Am I going to die? Uh, like he God. just comes out and says it. There's no beating around the bush. There's no tact. It's just the curiosity yeah. of a child that doesn't know this is not necessarily the kind of thing you say out loud, you know? Yeah. Um, so he's just, you know, am I going to die? Um, will I go to heaven? Right. You know, I'm very cold. I can't feel anything. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. There's something so, so um, sad about it to me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I also didn't get emotional watching it this most recent time. But right. it, it has affected me that way before. Well, it's because the character of Barry is not one you attach yourself to emotionally. True, true. Um, and I was, it was interesting. I was thinking about a lot of the criticism that um, – like Pauline Kael, uh, very famously in The New Yorker, said uh, Kubrick has taken a quick-witted story and controlled it so meticulously that he's drained the blood out of it. It's mm-hmm. a coffee table movie. Yeah. We might as well be at a three-hour slideshow for art history majors. <laughs> and I just didn't see it, man. Like, it's a three-hour film, but it needs to be because what you in, where you start with that character is Redmond – like I get the what is he like eighteen or nineteen? Yeah, something like that. Like yeah. Redmond Barry at the beginning of that movie, and one-legged Barry Lyndon <laughs> yeah. hobbling into that carriage at yeah. the end. Yeah, when you think about that, you've you've gone through a journey. You've seen a life that yeah. you would not have gotten in two hours. Oh, for sure. You know, it's necessary to be this long, and it is slow, but it. I was never bored. No, I don't all. find it a boring movie I was at fully all. Fully engrossed. Every scene, if you're on the movie's wavelength, mm-hmm. has humor. It has kind of commentary on the world at the time yep. or or the interior kind of change that's happening within within Barry Lyndon. Um, yeah, there, there's nothing dull about it. There's, there's just too much going on in every scene. They all feel like they have a purpose and they're propelling things forward and they're giving you more information mm-hmm. about this period of time. And some of them do proceed very slowly, but – I mean, they, it also allows him to have these, like, incredibly beautiful moments, like the scene where Lady Linden leaves the card game table mm-hmm. and walks outside yeah. and is kind of lit by, like, moonlight. Yeah, yeah. And you have the this amazing contrast between, like, the blue night lighting of the, of the exterior and the warm interior lighting through the window. Yeah. And that wonderful tracking shot as Barry walks out to to meet her yeah and kiss her and for kiss the first her time. and the movie just really takes its time and draws mm-hmm. out that moment and it, it 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 has the quality of like just a wonderful like classical kind of cinema mm-hmm. there's something so movie like about that yeah that particular moment um but also real of the period too i think yeah i, I don't think people it's not modern day new york city i think it there was a more language slower pace yeah. back then and uh, Scorsese talks about that actually. I I think it's part of um, the uh, a Life in Pictures documentary that uh-huh. uh, is all about Kubrick. Um, but but Scorsese says you know what Kubrick did with the period film is he took it back in time, mm-hmm. and he actually allows you to feel the slowness, yeah. the pace of life in that period, rather than being kind of this amped up like mm-hmm. don't get bored like Here's, modern day take. On yeah a yeah yeah. It's 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 a much more slowed down, subdued. Uh-huh. And once, if you're willing to go with it, to just like surrender to the, the yeah. pace of the movie mm-hmm. and just become completely engrossed in it, I find it, I mean, it's one of those movies that I could watch a hundred times yeah. over and over and over again and never get bored with it. You will, Casey. Yeah. You're going to hit a hundred. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I will. <laughs> I already can't wait to see it again, but I for sure want to see it on the big screen. Yeah. 
with great sound and like because the music. I mean, we haven't gotten into that. Oh man! Like Kubrick, uh, of course, loves classical music, and in this movie, he has free reign because it is during that time period. Absolutely. So he just goes nuts with it. He does. He does say that he cheated a little bit. Because oh, time period. The, the, yeah, the one of the main themes, the the Sarah band, the dun yeah, dun yeah. dun dun. That I believe is from maybe 30, later. 40 years later than yeah, yeah. the film takes place. But he gets a pass for that. He gets a pass for it. <laughs> and um yeah, again, uh in, in the extras, they 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 talk about how um he was considering all kinds of uh different music for yeah. the film, trying different things in the editing room. Um, probably looked at doing, you know, an original score to some extent. Yeah. And then finally, like quite late into the editing process, decided, actually, I'm just going to go with all, you know, yeah. pre-existing music. Still re-recorded it and did all kinds of different arrangements and orchestrations of it for different purposes because yeah. sometimes you have that theme just on like timpani. Sure. Sometimes you have more like a full orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's played... And like during the duels, it's more of like a suspenseful kind of version of it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes when things are more tragic and emotional, that's when the orchestra comes in and the strings are mm-hmm. swelling and it has more of like that tragic dimension. Yeah. Um, so it's a very versatile piece of music as well. And it just gives like this amazing consistency yeah. to the movie that it's like the same tune p- being played in different registers depending yeah. on it. It just... It works so well, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, we only got a few more minutes, so let's go ahead and finish on that final duel. Yes. Uh, there's three duels that sort of uh, sort of beginning, middle, and end mm-hmm. this, this movie. Yeah, yeah. And the final duel with, with Bullington um, is played in real time, and it's long. Oh, I love it, yeah. Like the setup, but again, it's all just – he could have trimmed three or four minutes, but why? Absolutely. Like the way they, they show the rules and the – and the and the um, sort of how stiff it all was, yeah. and how you had to go about it. Um, and this duel is interesting too because they it was the only one where they didn't fire at once. Yeah, I know there were different kinds of duels. Yeah, and but this was a like we take turns shooting yeah, at each other. It's very interesting that you know you flip a coin. Yep, to see who shoots first. See who shoots first. <laughs> oh, who's going to fire and who's going to receive fire? Yeah, and you notice uh, they they turn to their side to make themselves at least a little bit more yeah. narrow. Uh-huh. Than, than, than facing straight on. And again, it's this absurdity. It's the idea that, you know, what they're, what you're doing is somehow proper or right. gentlemanly or something. And they're in that great barn yes. with the with the birds. Yeah, the, uh, do- yeah, the doves. And, yeah, and, it was the only one that wasn't exterior. Yeah. Um, but that made for some really, like, great frames. and um, Gives you the, just the, the, the sound of the doves kind of going yeah. rustling and, and just <laughs> such, a, such a sense of place and everything. Yeah. And, and Bullington's uh, – one of my favorite, like, reactions in the whole movie is when his, his gun misfires. Yes. And he's like, you know, I need a different gun. Uh-huh. And they're like, no, that was your shot. That counts. Like, your that gun counts. gun discharged, so <laughs> he's just it's like... your time to receive, you know, yeah. So Lyndon, you know, fires into the ground yeah. and takes sort of the – even though he – fucking hates this kid. He hates the kid, He but refuses, and he, he would have killed yeah. him probably. Oh, yeah. Because he's a he's crack a good shot. shot. Yeah. Uh, and he fires into the ground, and you think for a moment, like, he's going to let it go, and they ask him, and I think everyone's kind of like, we're all good, right? Yeah. And he just looks and is like, you know, I have, what does he say? I have not received satisfaction. Exactly. You're yeah. Like, oh, man. Yeah. And but then, he did, and then right know? there you see in, in Ryan O'Neill's reaction in his eyes, you just see him. Yeah. It just washes over him like, my life is about to take a very drastic turn. Yeah. You know, I He's not killed. He 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 it's like he wants to be magnanimous in that moment. He uh-huh. wants to do this like 
honorable thing yeah and and sort of like settle things amicably so that maybe Bullingdon can be reintegrated into the family. Right. They can all live together happily ever after. And still be rich. And still be rich. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, and Bullingdon just takes yeah. that all away from him. But it, that's the only way that movie could end. Like yeah. Barry Lyndon in the end cannot no. stay in a place that he has not earned. There's no ending if, if he does that. Yeah. It's just like, he has to be yeah. kicked back out. Yeah. Because uh, he, never, he never belonged there. No. You know, to begin with. He has to kind of regress back towards yep. where he started. With and the short one leg. Funny, funny <laughs> tidbit from, uh, again, from from some of the extras on the Criterion. Um, Leon Vitale is actually vomiting in that scene. Oh, really? They, He's uh, so upset. They, they fixed him a lunch that day that was meant to be deliberately disgusting. That oh, was like no. cold soup and like chicken <laughs> and just this nasty concoction. Boiled chicken. Yeah. And um, and even that wasn't enough to get him like physically sick. And so they went to plan B, which is that they cracked open a raw egg and uh, had him swallow that down. And he said, as soon as it went down, I could feel it coming back up yeah. immediately. And so when he he's standing there about to receive fire and he has that first little bit of vomit that comes out, that uh-huh. is real true life vomit <laughs> he runs over to the corner and he gets really sick and you yeah. kind of hear that off screen uh-huh. and Vitaly said he was petrified that Kubrick was going to make him do it over and over again right but in fact Kubrick said nope that was great like it was a natural reaction the he only really one, vomited the only one take Kubrick ever exactly did, that was like the one time he ever did just like a single take is wow. he didn't put Vitaly through it over and over again that's pretty cool yeah alright man I know we could talk for another hour uh, I feel like we did it Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you saw the movie. You yeah, enjoyed man. the movie. Thank you for uh, picking this one. Absolutely. I don't yeah. know. It's just one of those that was on the list that I never got around to, and I never even knew quite what it was. I'd seen bits and pieces through documentaries. I knew it was that era, mm-hmm. but I was always just like, "What is Barry Lyndon?" And it's, now I know. It took me even even when I watched it in high school. Like it was one of the last ones I got around to. Yeah, because I had that whole first Kubrick box set, and I kind of worked my way through the whole thing. Uh-huh. And then eventually it was just kind of like, all right, I got three hours to kill. I guess I'll check yeah. out this like lesser known, lesser appreciated Kubrick movie. And I was just blown away from it. And again, uh, like so many of his movies, appreciated much later than they were at the time. Big time. It's sort yeah. of, I mean, not every film he did, but he, he had a weird thing about uh, uh, people giving them a second look years later. Because now this is regarded as one of the great masterpieces absolutely. of all time. And I think it absolutely deserves that reputation. I mean, it's yeah. just, it, you know, when we were talking about The Shining, that's a movie that I'm very comfortable, like, picking apart yeah. and kind of nitpicking. And I look at it almost as more of this kind of, like, object. Uh-huh. But Barry Lyndon is, to me, is almost perfect. Yeah. There's, there's very little that you could point out as flawed. Mm-hmm. It, it just feels so tightly constructed. So meticulous. So incredibly executed. Yeah that it's just this incredible kind of masterpiece, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's more than a movie. I know that sounds cheesy, but it really is. Yeah. All right, good stuff, man. Great. Thanks a lot, Casey. Part three coming soon, everyone. Looking forward to it. Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. What if you could learn from the world's most inspiring women? 
Now you can. Introducing Seneca Women, conversations on power and purpose. We bring you purpose-driven, actionable ideas and insights from leaders such as Tori Birch, Madeline Albright, Katie Couric, Valerie Jarrett, Andrea Jung, and many more. Listen to Seneca Women, conversations on power and purpose on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your child. From watching their soccer game in the pouring rain to soothing a crying baby at 4 a.m., you love your kids. So love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Car seats reduce fatal injury by 54 to 71% for toddlers and infants. Car crashes are a leading cause of death for children under 13, but when used correctly, safety restraints can dramatically reduce the risk of fatality or injury. It's critical that every trip, every time children are in the right seat for their age and size, and that children under 13 years of age are always buckled up in the back seat. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat to learn more. This message is brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.